Well, I just want to say how much of an honor it is for me to be able to be sitting up here and speaking to you all tonight. Every time I get a chance and Pastor Sam allows the young guys to come up here and, and bring a word, I'm always excited when I'm, in, I'm invited to do so. And uh, so with that being said, I just, uh, I'm just i really appreciative to our pastor and uh, what he has going on over here, you know, and the anointing on his life. So um, just before we get started, I'd just like to open up in prayer, if we can, once more. Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, your graciousness. We thank you for your love towards us, Lord God, and we thank you for the word, Lord God. You said your word is truth, oh Lord, and we believe it, Lord God. So we just ask you to anoint this word tonight, Lord God, anoint me to, to confer the word clearly to the group, Lord God, and anoint the hearts to hear and to receive the word tonight. And these things we ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I was reading... 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15. And we're admonished by Peter in this, in this passage to sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have in you. We're, we're told by Peter to make, be ready to make a defense and stand up for your faith and to be able to convey and tell them why you believe what you believe. Uh, that's very important. It is based upon that scripture um, that I'm building tonight, okay? Um, we're going to start off, well, first off, let me just say that um, tonight I'm, I'm standing up here or sitting up here and I'm, I'm, I'm teaching on the shoulders of giants, okay? Because literally the material and the content that I'm about to bring forth tonight took thousands and thousands of hours of research to be able to dig through and find it all. Believe you me, I'm no great researcher, okay? So when I'm bringing these things to you, I just want to want to pass it off and give credit where credit is due. I'm merely conveying some very, very interesting information concerning the Word of God that I've come across. Um, the question I want to present to us tonight, how can we know history? How can we know anything has ever happened historically? For example, in 70 AD, did... The Roman, uh, Roman general Titus with the 10th Roman legion come and destroy Jerusalem? Did they come and destroy the temple, the temple in 70 AD? If so, how do we know that they did that? How do we know that George Washington was the first president of the United States? I mean, no one sitting here tonight was there. We didn't physically see with our eyes. How do we know it happened? In 1927, did Charles Lindbergh fly the first ever solo flight across the Atlantic in 1945 was the first atomic bomb ever dropped upon a nation. We weren't around for these things. How do we know that they happened? Simply put, we know that these things, hap these things happened from testimony. Testimony. From oral testimony, from written testimony, and from physical testimony. I would submit to y'all tonight that history is a knowledge of the past that is based upon testimony. That's how we know that anything, can, anything has happened historically is from testimony. Now, the question remains with that, and this is probably one of the, one of the weak points that, to that definition, that history is a knowledge of the past based on testimony, is, is your testimony reliable? I mean, think about it. People lie. People cheat. People forget. People remember inaccurately. So how do you know that your testimony 
and what you're basing your facts on to, to, to look back in the history, how do we know that that's reliable? Is your testimony reliable? When it comes to us investigating Christianity and investigating this word right here, I would, I would submit to you another fact, that Christianity is a knowledge of the past which is based upon testimony. Mainly, this book right here, the Bible, what, what us Christians call the Word of God. But the question still remains, is this testimony reliable? Under investigation, could we come to a reasonable conclusion that, yes, I can trust the testimony contained in the New Testament? This is what we're going to discuss this evening. How can we know? The two main questions that we'll ask tonight and the two main questions that we'll discuss is one, first and foremost, can I hold this Bible right here in my hand and be confident that what I have in my hand will, is what was actually written in the first century A.D.? Can I be certain that what Peter, what Paul, what Luke wrote down first century, is it the same thing? Is it the original? How do we know that things weren't added? Things weren't taken away. Things weren't doctored up to make them sound good. I mean, how do we know that Jesus fed 5,000 with uh, five loaves and two fish? How, did he, how do we know that he proclaimed to be the Son of God? Or that he, he would have went around healing blind eyes and, and cleansing the leper and raising the dead? One of the arguments is that people came back behind and superimposed all of these great things, these, these uh, miraculous attributes to Christ. There's an argument that goes around that says he never, he never uh, claimed to be d divine. He was just a good, wise, moral teacher. So how do we know that that indeed is not the case? How can we know for sure? The second thing that we're going to look at, and I think more importantly than the first question, is the second question we're going to look at today. Is what was written down, are the things that the apostles wrote down in this book, are they true? Because if they aren't true, it doesn't matter, in my opinion, that what we have, what they actually wrote down. Y'all get that? Does that make sense? If it's not true, the things that they wrote down didn't really happen, I could care less if what they wrote down is what I still have in my hand today. So these are the two questions we're going to look, look at tonight. Can I trust in this Bible that it, its content is original? It's the original uh, writings of the apostles. And two, is it true? Are the things, that, the testimony that they wrote in this book, are they true? First things first, though, y'all. And you're going to have to stay with me here, okay, because we have to do some legwork. And I need y'all attention here for the next three minutes, three to five minutes, because if you miss out on what I'm about to plant down right here, you're going to miss the bigger picture ten minutes from now, okay? When analyzing any book of history, not just the Bible, but any book of antiquity, any old ancient literature, we apply what's called a bibliographical test. That has nothing to do with the Bible. It's a bibliographical test. And... This test determines the reliability and the trustworthiness of any documentation of history. Um, the main thing that a bibliographical test asks is a question concerning the manuscripts. Okay? Now, many people think the manuscripts are the original documentations. They're not. Okay? A manuscript is a copy of the original. Anytime you hear that term manuscripts being th flown about, it is a copy of the original. The original work piece of literature or whatever it may be is called the autographer, okay? Where we get our modern-day word autograph from. It's the autography. It was the original pen documentation. The manuscript is a copy of the autographer. So 
The question is, why do we need to ask questions concerning the manuscript? Why is that so important? Well, first things first, the writing material that they had back in days of antiquity, before the printing press, uh, they weren't very stable. They were decent for the time, but they didn't last very long. Does anybody know what they wrote on back in the first century? Papyrus. Yep, papyrus. That's right. And basically what, a, what papyrus is, they took it from the papyri reef or reed in the, the, the de, uh, Delta Nile, in the shallow areas of the, of the Nile. And what they would do is it, it would grow really tall and they would cut it off right at the base. They would slit it and they would open it up. And it became a very thin uh, piece of uh, semi-paper. And what they would do is they would take many papyri reeds, split them open, open them up, and they would paste one on top of the other. And it became a very durable writing medium. So they would use that. And, um, of course, they had ink that they would use. It was pretty good ink, but it wasn't the same quality ink of what we use today. But it was still pretty decent. However, just with any perishable material, after a certain amount of time, it would begin to break down. The ink would begin to fade. The papyrus would begin to uh, break down and dismantle. In order to preserve the original content of any, and once again, this is not just Bible, this is of any work of antiquity, they would start to make copies. So the first generation may make 20 copies of the original. The second generation may turn around and make 50 copies. The third generation may, may come back and print out 100 copies. I say print out, there was no printing. This was well, well before the printing press. They would actually sit there and write it out, letter for letter, side by side. This is how the original text was, was preserved. This is, this is how it was preserved from generation to generation. And that's why it's so important why we ask questions about the manuscripts, okay? This is the bibliographical test. We look at the manuscripts. Two main questions come whenever you look at taking a bibliographical test towards any documentation. And they deal with two things. One is the timeline. How old is the manuscript compared to the original writing? How far off in time is that the, the latest manuscript that you have to the original? Because you see, for, for writings like something like Homer, Homer, the, the Greek epic poet, Homer wrote in 800 B.C. There is no original writings of Homer left to this day. Matter of fact, for the first two, three hundred years after Homer, you're not going to even get a copy of a copy of a copy, okay? All these things perish. So it's very important how far from the original is your earliest manuscript you have. Two, the second question you ask in a bibliographical test is how many manuscripts do you have? How many do you have? It's called manuscript authority. The more you have, the more authority you're going to have manuscripts. So let's look at the first one, dealing with the timeline, okay? How far removed are the manuscripts that you have in your hand to the original? Why do they need to look at the timeline? And I just alluded to it just a second ago. Why would that be so important? The further out from the original, the greater the risk of having errors in the manuscript. This is because it has been a copy of a copy of a copy. The risk of error goes up the further removed you are from the original. <clears throat> this is why it's important whenever you're looking at the bibliographical test for any documentation, how far is it off from the original? With that being said, let's take a look at some of the classical works of antiquity and to see the timeline from the autographa or the original to the manuscript or the copy, right? Aristotle, a Greek philosopher. Aristotle wrote in 343 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have of Aristotle's work is in 1100 A.D. 
That's a 1,443-year time gap. Plato, another Greek philosopher. Plato wrote in 400 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have is in 900 A.D., a 1,300-year separation in time gap. Herodotus, a great Greek historian, wrote approximately 450 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have of Herodotus' work is in 900 A.D., a 1,350-year time gap. Caesar with the Gallic Wars. The, this, this is where, where historical documents of the military campaigns of Julius Caesar. They were written from anywhere from 100 to 44 um, B.C. The earliest manuscripts is 900 A.D., a thousand-year difference. Tacitus, some say the greatest Roman historian. 100 A.D., 1100 A.D. is the earliest manuscripts, a thousand-year difference. Pliny the Younger, 750-year difference. Homer, the, the epic poet, Homer, wrote in 800 B.C., 400 B.C. is the earliest manuscripts, 400-year difference. Let's take a look at the New Testament. How does the New Testament line up in timeline uh, authority whenever we're taking, the, taking a look at the bibliographical test of any text? The New Testament was written from 50 A.D. to liberally, say, in 90 A.D. Most scholars who look at it say the New Testament was complete by 70 A.D., okay? Well within, well within the life of people who were well alive and present for the, in the days of Christ. We'll get to that later. I'm getting ahead of myself. We have manuscripts, fragments of the New Testament in 114 A.D., a 50-year difference. We have books of the New Testament in manuscripts, 200 A.D., a 100-year difference from the original. Most of the New Testament we have in 250 A.D. manuscripts. That's a 150-year difference from, from um, the original writing. We have manuscripts of the complete New Testament in 325 A.D., a mere 225 years from the autographer, from the original pinning of Peter and Paul and Luke. As you can see, the earliest existing manuscripts in the New Testament were written much, much closer in time to the original than any other work of antiquity. Secular historians, secular scholars, do not even dare question the workings and the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Homer, Tacitus. They don't even dare question them. And I would submit to you that if the New Testament was secular in nature, and it wasn't a spiritual book, but it was secular, it would be the crown jewel of all the works of antiquity. And it would be held up without equal in the midst of all the other works of man. Scholars would be hard-pressed to challenge the accuracy of content based on the proximity and time of the existing manuscripts to the original. Based on the timeline, the New Testament far surpasses any of the accepted major works of antiquity. The Bible's authoritative when it comes to timeline. The bibliographical test of timeline, which is the test that we use for any works of literature, the Bible far exceeds all of them together. So we said the first question dealing with the bibliographical test was timeline. How far removed are the manuscripts from the original? The second question we have to look at is how many manuscripts do you have? How many manuscripts do you have? Why is that important? Why is that an important question? Come with me here. Think about this. If we had 10 manuscripts, let's make it easier, nine. We had nine manuscripts of the Gospel of John, okay? Three of those manuscripts said, God so loved the world 
Three other of the manuscripts said, God so liked the world. And the other three manuscripts said, God kind of, kind of, sort of thought the world was okay. Out of those nine existing manuscripts, how could we know what the original said? They're divided. It'd be impossible for us to really and truly know because we have three different stories. God so loved the world. God so liked the world. God so kind of thought the world was okay. Now go with me here. Just for instance, if you have now, go from nine manuscripts to 500 manuscripts. And out of the 500, you have three that say God thought the world was okay. You have three more that God, that God said he liked the world. But you have 494 manuscripts that say God so loved the world. To a very, very high degree of certainty, you can take away those six manuscripts and say those are the errors. And the vast majority of the manuscripts you have says God so loved the world. We can get a very, very high degree of a pure text through the number of manuscripts that any work has, okay? The more manuscripts available, the higher the manuscript authority. So let's take a look. Once again, let's go to the major classical works of antiquity, major writers. Let's go to Plato. Let's see how many manuscripts we have of Plato's existing. Seven. Seven, seven uh, manuscripts of Plato. Tacitus, 20 manuscripts. Herodotus, eight man- manuscripts. Pliny, seven. Sophocles, which was a, a Greek playwright, 193 manuscripts. Uh, the Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius, two manuscripts. Euripides, a Greek playwright, nine manuscripts. Demosthenes, 200 manuscripts. Aristophanes, 12 manuscripts. Aristotle, 49 manuscripts. Homer, 643 manuscripts. How many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament alone? 24,663 manuscripts of the New Testament. There is no comparison. There is absolutely no comparison to the Bible with any other book of antiquity, any other book, using the bibliographical test from timeline and manuscript authority, the Bible stands alone as the most authoritative book in all of history. The fact is, if I know what I know about this book, that this indeed is the inspired word of God, and these are the words of God revealed to mankind himself, the fact is I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, think anything less. It should have that standing head and shoulders above any of the other works. God made his word stand far above all human writings of all historical ages. And that's just the way I, I think it would be. In fact, if we cannot trust the Bible, there is no book in history we can safely say that we could trust. We would have to be completely historical agnostic if, if we say we cannot trust this Bible, but then we can go around and trust the writings of Plato and Aristotle and Aristophanes, and Sophocles, and all these great writers of the past. Now, some may say, you know, Kobe, that's fine, we have timeline, we have all these manuscripts, but how do we really know? How can we be certain that stuff wasn't added and taken away? How do we really know these things? Take all the Bibles we have in this room tonight. Take all the Bibles we have in America. Take all the Bibles in the world. Every single last, last Bible burn them, have a, have a big Bible burn and whatever. Not only that, but take all the manuscripts that they have. The 26,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, burn those as well too. 
So you don't have any Bibles in the world. You don't have any manuscripts. And what if I would tell you we could still reconstruct the entire New Testament minus 11 verses? How would that be possible? Is that possible? The fact is, yes, it is. And by the way, this is another one of these things. You cannot do this with any other human work. Only the Bible stands, stands alone and says apart in, in this area right here. This is how we could reconstruct the Bible. Without any Bibles, without any manuscripts. The early church fathers, um, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Tertullian, all these early first and second century church fathers, they would visit churches. And when they would visit churches, they would, they would write them letters. And if you've ever read any of Justin Martyr's work, it's pretty much the New Testament regurgitated. It is, it is scripture by scripture, and he, he's just planting them and placing them everywhere in, in his writings. So did all the early church fathers. They would jam-pack their letters and teachings with direct quotations from the scriptures. From just the writings of the early church fathers, we can build a record of over, over 36,289 quotations of just the New Testament alone. Sir David Dalrippa spent years searching the writings of all the early church fathers, and he was able to reconstruct the entire New Testament minus 11 verses. Wow. You tell me that's not preservation of God's holy word. No other, no other work of antiquity can attest to that. No other work of antiquity can even come close to what the Bible has. Again, if we can't trust the work of the New Testament, there is no book in all of history that we can trust. We would have to be complete historical agnostics. So, we looked at, can we trust what this word says? Can we, can we hold in our hand and say that this indeed was the writings of the apostles? Nothing has been changed. Nothing's been taken away. Nothing's been added. We looked at, we looked at the timeline, and it's closer than any other work. We looked at the manuscripts. It has all the manuscripts combined of all the major work major workers, major writers, and uh, all these playwrights and, and orators and whatnot, all the classical works of antiquity combined don't even come close to topping up the manuscript authority of the Bible. I believe we can say with a resounding yes, this is indeed the work of the, the, uh, the early church uh, apostles and, and the, the Luke and Paul and Peter, all these guys. We can be certain that this indeed is the word of God, unchanged. Now, we answered the first question, how can we know that? How can we know that what we have here is original? But the second question is, how can we know that what they wrote was true? I mean, some say that these guys were just after the glory. They were just after, hey, some recognition. Let's, let's, let's talk about Jesus and the characteristics of a God kind. And let's, let's attribute to all of these things that he was saying and doing, and let's make ourselves famous. I don't think that'll hold much water as we shall see here soon. But there's three major lines of reasoning that I want to take us through on how we can know that what is actually written in here is true and how it actually, it did happen, it did come to pass. The first thing we look at is uh, that the fact is the writers of the New Testament wrote as eyewitnesses. They were eyewitness accounts to everything that they wrote down. Many people don't consider this. A lot of people think that it just is kind of collections of stories and just passed down, kind of like fables, kind of like mythological, um, you know, Hercules and, and centaurs and minotaurs and Greek gods and whatnot. 
But the fact is, these apostles wrote as eyewitnesses in real time and real space. Matthew, Mark, and John in any court of law could be considered eyewitness accounts. Now, Mark did not witness much of what he wrote down. Um, but he was an eyewitness. He was writing, should I say, an eyewitness account of who they saw, of who that person saw. That person was Peter. Uh, Mark was Peter's scribe. And everything that Peter gave him a verbal eyewitness account of, Mark wrote down. So the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's account, but written down by Mark. Um, Luke now is a different story. Luke did not uh, physically witness all of the things that he wrote down in his gospel. What Luke did was he went around to the eyewitnesses. And let me let me tell you, uh, mention something about Luke. Luke is probably one of the greatest historians uh, history has known. He is not talked about. He's kind of swept under the rug because of the fact that his, his writings and his historical accounts were spiritual in, in Christianity. So they're not. He's not held in the same regard as some of these other guys, Plato and Aristotle and Tacitus, the Roman historian. But let me tell you something. Luke is is one to uh, throw his weight around. I mean, they start to start to uh, read about Luke and his his historical aspects and whatnot. And for, for years, they were like, oh, that never happened, that never happened. Luke's, Luke was bogus. Luke was a bad historian. Only to find out later that indeed Luke was right. That did happen through archaeological surveys and archaeological studies. So it's been proven time and time again. Luke is absolutely a great historian. And uh, Luke didn't actually eyewitness these things, but he went around and talked to eyewitnesses. And people say most of Luke's um, information where he pulled it from, a great deal of it was from Mary, Jesus' mother. So he went straight to the source, and you can see some of those things in the early uh, accounts of Luke whenever he was talking about Jesus' birth and some of the things that only Mary would have known. You, that kind of shines through in Luke's account whenever you really read it. Um, you see, early, the New Testament church was so committed to accuracy. They wanted to know for sure that what they believed and what they were being told was absolutely true. Why? Why was this the case? Because first century Christians were given their lives for the things that they believed in. This wasn't a walk in the park, y'all. They, they were coming into persecution, severe persecution, and with the constant threat of death hanging over their heads all the time. They wanted to know that, they, that what they believed was the truth. You see, eyewitnesses are so vital to learn anything about history, anything at all. The ability to be able to tell the truth about something lies in the eyewitnesses' nearness to the event. Nearness in two ways. Geographical, meaning that uh, they were in close proximity to the events, and two, in chronological time. They, they were close in time, in the space of time to the actual events. In other words, they were eyewitnesses. The apostles wrote as eyewitnesses. If you have your Bibles, let's turn open. First John chapter 1. I want to read a couple of the things that the apostles talked about, what they said. That's First John chapter 1. And this is the this is the Apostle John writing here, who also wrote the gospel, and who also wrote the book of Revelation. He says this, opening up, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was in the Father 
and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They said we saw, we handled, we touched him with our hands. This is not some faraway story that was handed down from generation to generation. We are the eyewitnesses of these accounts that we're telling you about. Flip one book back, Second Peter, first chapter, verse 16. This is the Apostle Peter writing here. Second Peter, 1.16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is, is retelling this story right here about the, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, whenever Jesus took upon the mountain, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they said before him he was transformed. Uh, it said that he, sh- he shone brightly, as bright as the sun, and his garments were like filled with light. It's actually, if you read the Greek uh, rendering of that, it was like light was emanating from within. It wasn't like a light, a light shined upon him, but the light was coming from within, the Mount of Transfiguration. We know the story. But this is what Peter's referring to him whenever he says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We didn't, we didn't follow fairy tales whenever we were telling you these things. We were eyewitnesses of what we saw. Um, if somebody's writing them down and keeping note, uh, for sake of time, I'm not going to read all, read the rest, but Acts chapter 2, 32, Acts chapter 3, 14, Acts 4, 18 through 20, the apostles all give witness. They have heard, they have saw, they have handled, they were eyewitnesses. Um, this is a good one that I want to read, and this, it's in the first chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And once again, this is Luke, the historian, the physician Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. Speaking of, speaking of Luke's being a historian, they've actually uh, used the book of Acts as a roadmap to places and towns which Luke had wrote about that was no longer in existence. And after, um, and they, they had been wrote off by secular um, theologians and secular scholars that Luke was bunk, Luke was falsified. I mean, this couldn't have been. And lo and behold, archaeological digs later, they're coming up exactly where Luke said it was. Bar none, one of the greatest historian, historian, uh, historians ever with, it, with, it, with his, uh, his accountings. So this is Luke right here again. Uh, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up and after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had also presented himself alive after his suffering. This suffering refers to his death. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days. 40 days. Not four hours. Not four days. 40 days he presented himself alive to his apostles and speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This word right here that, that, that uh, Luke uses 
presented himself with many infallible proofs. That means overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence that he indeed had risen from the grave. Um, you see, these eyewitnesses, they claim to be eyewitnesses not only of his life, not only of his miracles, but also of his resurrection, the actual raising of the dead of, of, of Christ himself. All throughout the book of Acts, the church was founded on eyewitness testimony. That's the first thing we, we can know, is that the fact that the apostles were eyewitnesses of the things they said and they wrote. The second thing that we look at, the second line of reasoning, the apostles were eyewitnesses, not only in the presence of knowledgeable witnesses, but also hostile witnesses, okay? Um, the apostles not only preached their message of Christ, raised from the dead in the, in the presence of believers, and people who believed the things that they said, but they also in the presence of people who are knowledgeable of the events that happened. And to a large degree, people were, who were hostile to the very things that the apostles are proclaiming to talk about and proclaiming to see. You see, the witnesses were knowledgeable of the events described in the gospel. Um, this is the thing. The apostles are going on in the book of Acts. They're preaching Christ crucified, raised from the dead, alive to the Father. They, they proclaim that he said great things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. They said they saw him raise the dead. They said they saw him uh, heal blinded eyes, uh, cleanse the lepers, uh, feed multitudes with only a few loaves. They seen him walk on water, calm the storm with only a word. I mean, who could ever imagine something like that? Who is this man? The apostle said to himself, who is this man that he even speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him? This is the Jesus that the apostles were preaching. If what they were preaching were, was false, and if the things that they had talked about were added to, to, to kind of like grandize uh, Christ, it would have been able to have been proven false in a heartbeat. Not only that, but it was certainly would have been. Remember, these guys are writing in 50, doing the things in 60 AD, a mere... 30 years after Jesus Christ lived, died, and was raised from the dead. There were people alive and well who knew exactly what Jesus did. And still they could not bring themselves to discredit it. Not only that, not, not only was it not discredited, but it spread. It spread fast and far. Um, if the apostles had lied about their witness and about their testimony, it would have been discredited at its inception. It would not, not even gotten off the ground. Um, however, the gospel was widely circulated in the life and time of people who knew what happened and witnessed the events of Christ. The Jewish leadership had every reason to stop it. And believe me, they tried. They killed Christ to try to stop this message from going out. Not only did they kill Christ, but they persecuted his followers as well, too. The reason they could not stop this message is because too many people, whether they liked it or not, knew firsthand that everything the apostles said was truth. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul. They say uh, Corinthians was probably written in the early 60s, A.D. <clears throat> Verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, then the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. What is he saying here? The greater part or the majority of the people who saw this resurrection and saw Christ rise, they're still alive to this day. They still can verify the things that we're attesting to you right here, right now. Then he goes on to say this. He said, some have fallen asleep, some have died, but the majority are still alive. After this, he was seen by James, then all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Meaning that the Paul was saying, I saw him last, but I was not part of his ministry. I didn't know him. I wasn't part of the, part of the inner circle. I didn't see him in his humanity. The way I saw him was in the resurrected, glorified Christ coming to me. And see, that was one of the, 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 the things that it had to be transpire, had to happen for you to be an apostle. You had to be called by, by Christ directly. He had to call you into his inner circle to be one of the original uh, apostles. And that's why uh, Paul was considered an apostle as well, too, because on the road to Damascus, Christ, the risen Christ, showed himself to Paul, who was persecuting the church at the time, killing Christians, bringing Christians in from all over the, all over the land to come back to Jerusalem and face trial. He was persecuting Christians, and Christ stopped them on the road and said, you're serving me now. This is what I have for you to do. Um, so we see right here, if anything that the apostles stated about Christ, anything at all, were added or taken away, they would have certainly been called out for it. They'd have been called out immediately for it. And the fact of the matter is, they weren't. They weren't. They couldn't. Too many people knew the truth. Too many people knew it. Let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. I know I know I have you running the scripture here, but hey, listen, this is where we gain the authority from. This is where we know the truth from. It's from the scriptures themselves. So we're going to read scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. If I can get to it. Okay. Listen to the change up here. Because, because, up until this point, we've been talking about the apostles saying these things we have seen. We, we testify to you the things that we have seen, we have handled, we, ha- we have been with him. But listen to the change up right here. This is Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You see the change up here? Attested by God to you. Did miracles and signs and wonders in your presence. As you yourselves also know. He appealed to the knowledge of the hearers. The knowledge that they had in Christ. You see the fact is there were too many people in this crowd that Peter was preaching to. If these things didn't happen that Peter started talking about. Peter would have been lucky to leave with his life intact. They'd have stoned him. Because he would have been preaching some strange doctrine. But the fact is. They knew exactly what he was talking about whenever he mentioned Christ. Christ crucified. Christ uh, in, in his miraculous life. And Christ raised from the dead. Peter constantly appealed to their knowledge. Constantly appealed to it to confirm the truth of what they were teaching. Another really good uh, scripture, and for the sake of time we're not going to go into it, is found in Acts, Acts uh, 26, 24 through 26. And just a summary, Paul was appealing to Agrippa, the king. And if you really, if you hadn't read it in a while, go back and read it because, man, it's a mighty, mighty witness. And he basically says that, you know, Agrippa, these things were not, these things I tell you about the resurrection of Christ and his miraculous life and the claims that he made, these things were not done in a corner. You yourself all know these things. 
It has been preached far and wide that these things that have, uh, have transpired and have occurred. Um, another, another time when he appeals to the knowledge of the hearer, you know. Uh, the fact is, if we can't trust the New Testament concerning what Christ said and what Christ did, it's still my belief at this point, I can't trust anything of history. We can't. Everything they said about Jesus was confirmed in the presence of knowledgeable witnesses, much of whom were hostile to the message of Christ. That's two. The first thing, there were eyewitnesses. The second line of reasoning, there were eyewitnesses in the presence of hostile witnesses, in the presence of people who knew what had happened. Thirdly, and probably the most powerful testimony to the truth of the Word of God and the truth of their testimony and the things that these men saw. All of the apostles, minus John, died a martyr's death for their testimony. All of them lived lives of ridicule, lives of mockery, lives of being beaten with whips and sticks, getting stoned, living in constant threat of death constantly. They were all tortured and eventually executed for this one thing. They refused to renounce Christ and Him bodily raised from the dead. This was the message that they did not renounce. They lost everything for it. They gave up everything for it. And they still would not back down from it. Acts 1, 2, 3, which we just read, affirms that Christ was raised from the dead and, and tarried with His apostles for 40 days, seen by many uh, Paul says by 500 at one time. Not only that, but at his death on the cross, it was a Roman execution. And under Roman executions, you had to have four professional soldiers who would witness and testify that the, that the, the, the person they were crucifying indeed was dead. The four, the four soldiers attested to it, that he was buried. And the apostles, on the third day he rose again. This, these are the apostles' own words. This is their testimony. Remember, what is history? What is Christianity? A knowledge of the past that is based upon testimony. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, Kobe, many people over history, in the times of history, have died for a lie. Many people have died for something that, you know, they believed to be true but wasn't true. What makes this so different? Well, the fact is that is true. Many people have died for a lie. Many people have died for causes that they thought were, were just and thought were true but were bad, and they were wrong, and they were willing to, willing to give their life. Let me ask you this question. How many people would die and give their livelihood and everything they had for something that they knew was a lie? Not only did they, they, they didn't just believe it to be true, they knew that it was false. How many people would die? How many people would give up their life for something they know to be false? And at this point in their life, at this point of their writings, if, if the resurrection was a lie, the apostles knew it to be a lie. They would have known it to be a lie. And the fact is, they still chose death over recanting what they believed and testified was to be the truth. They still chose to give up their families, to give up their business, to give up their treasure, and ultimately to give up their lives. You see... It goes against every grain of human nature to be willing to suffer and die for something you believe in your heart and you know in your heart to be a lie. Many have died for something they thought was true. Men don't die for something they know to be a lie. The fact is, liars make poor martyrs. Liars make poor martyrs. And it goes against every grain of human nature that we have. 
The fact is, these men gave up their lives because of the truth. They testify to us and to all coming generations of the truth. God in His sovereignty has protected this word intact. Nothing added, nothing taken away as the truth. The testimony of the truth of what God did. The fact is, God said, I'm going to reveal myself to man in my word. And not only will I reveal him in my word, but I will become the word. For the, for the Bible says that Jesus Christ was the word. He was the word of God. And the word became flesh. You know, came into, the, came into this world to take the place on behalf of sinful humanity. Pay the price that man was supposed to pay while living the life man was supposed to live. It testifies to the truth of this. And not only did he do that, but once he paid the price, that awful price that every man had to pay was depicted upon Calvary's bloody cross. And once he did that, three days later, he rose from the dead, signifying that indeed he was who he says he was. He was God come in the flesh, come to redeem mankind. For, for Peter tells us in the scripture that there is no other name given under heaven by which man may, may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. He is the way. Jesus Christ was God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's why it's so important we get the truth out. And the fact is, whenever Jesus Christ raised from the dead, you know what he said? I testify to my words now, they are true. Matter of fact, that was the sign that he gave the Pharisees. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. You want a sign? That's the sign I'm going to give you, that my words are true. And the apostles testified to that resurrection. And basically, whenever Christ raised from the dead, now he has, he has power over death, hell, and the grave. He took the keys that the devil once controlled it and, and had it. And now all men, the Bible says, whosoever would call upon his name, whosoever would, would approach Christ in faith and believe, for, for, um, believe in him for the, for the repentance and the remissions of sins, they would have everlasting life. So this is what this book tells us. And as we've seen tonight, I believe resoundingly and overwhelmingly, we can say we can trust this word of God. We can trust what it says, and we can trust in our hearts that what is written in these pages is the absolute truth that he said, whomsoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This book is what it says it is, y'all. This is a divinely inspired word of God, taken by God, protected by God, and given to all mankind so they may find the light and the path back home. So, in summary, we can trust in it. Bibliographically speaking, there is no other work close to the Bible as far as for timeline, as far as for manuscripts. It is indeed, it stands head and shoulders above every work. And two, we can absolutely be certain that it is truth, that it is indeed the testimony of, of truthful men, men of integrity, men who... who lay down their lives to commit this truth to all men so that they, they also may be saved by the words contained in the scripture. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word tonight, Lord God. We're just thankful that you preserved this, this precious word, Lord God, and, and found in these words, Lord God, is the path back to you. And the path back to you lies in one person and one person alone, the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, crucified, died, and buried and rose on the third day so that we may have life. And all who would call upon your name would receive salvation, would, would, would be able to leave the fires of hell, Lord God, and, 
enjoy the bliss of heaven forever and ever, oh Lord God. We're so thankful, Lord God, that the revelation of who you are is in your word, Lord God. And we thank you for that, Lord. We just ask you, Lord God, let us, let us build our faith, Father. You know, uh, we don't have blind faith, Lord God. We have, we have a knowing faith, and we have faith in your word. We have faith in you, Lord God, for you are God, and there is no other. We just thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time. Take this word, Lord God, and let it become ingrained in our hearts and our lives, Lord God, and let it build our faith even more than we already have, Father. We just ask you for your protection and your provision, and these things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen.